I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallaxies listeners. On this edition of the show, Dan Fight of the Independent Media Collective Unicorn Riot joins us to discuss a rather interesting investigative piece he wrote recently entitled January 6 Documents Reveal Plans to Overturn 2020 Election as Military Questions Deepen. Now, for the uninitiated, this piece, this, of course, deals with the events of the Capitol breach that occurred on January 6th, 2020, just a little over one year ago. However, Dan's focus is rather specific in that he focuses on the conflicts between the timeline of events given by the Pentagon on one end, and the D.C. National Guard on the other. It's a rather complex story, but we're going to get into it in detail on this edition of Parallax Views, and it will take us in a number of directions, including discussion of national emergency measures, continuity of government plans, and what Dan refers to as America's covert empire dating back to the Cold War. Some of the key figures we'll be talking about include General Michael Flynn, who of course became rather infamous during the Trump presidency. Another name that you'll hear us talk about is Major General John Singlob. A 100-year-old man with ties to the Iran-Contra affair and the World Anti-Communist League, as well as other intrigues. How's it all tied together? Well, you'll have to listen to find out, and I hope that even with the sort of complex web that we're going to introduce in this conversation you'll be able to grok what we're talking about. And with that being said, let's get right to the conversation with Dan Fight of Unicorn Riot. Before we start our conversation, a word from our sponsors. I wrote The Big Balloon, a love story. A memoir collage during quarantine. My legs swelled up at the computer. I took pictures of objects in my house. Each image inspired a wormhole of chain-linked recall. It's funny, disturbing, and scary honest. The chapters are just rooms in my house. 
Ryan Walsh, author of Astral Weeks, A Secret History of 1968, said this, Berlin populates his writing with memories that will break your heart and wisdom tossed off as one-liners. Walk through his house, flip on the lights room by room, see what he has left there for you and all of us. All of my bands, Orchestra Luna through the Nickel and Dime Band, find a place here. But there's a deeper cut into my non-musical, queer life and those I've loved. Friends, family, portraits, and weird observations. Part Andy Rooney, part David Sedaris, part Proust. A stretch. You can read about it on my website, berlinrick.com. You can buy this beast of a book on Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes, and Noble. Thank you. Hey, Parallax News listeners. Before we continue the show, I've got a movie that I want to tell you about. Check out the film Tremel by Christopher Jason Bell, available on the Slam Dance YouTube channel. The film follows Dale as he lives a solitary life in a small town, his only outlet being conversations with the local pharmacist Muhammad. As time passes, Dale slowly begins to reveal more of his life and history to Muhammad. Lauded for its empathy, Tremel highlights the forgotten community member in a time when there is no community, and examines what happens when someone's only human connection is a service worker. You can watch over at slamdance.com slash watch slash Tremel or at youtube.com slash slamdance. Check it out, folks. Welcome back to Parallax Views. A guest that I haven't had on in a while. I think the last time we spoke was in 2019. Uh, Barrett Brown helped to get us in contact with each other. Dan Fight of Unicorn Riot. Uh, how are you doing? And for my listeners, maybe you could refresh their memory about uh, what Unicorn Riot does and its sort of uh, goals. Sure. Uh, I'm doing really well. Glad to be with you. Uh, it's a nice uh, sunny day here, so that's good. Uh, I'm a reporter and producer with Unicorn Riot. We're a nonprofit media organization. We're a 501c3. I should stress that we're a very nonpartisan organization. And we cover social movements, uh, stories that aren't getting a lot of attention. We try to focus a lot on, on people that don't really have access to traditional media outlets and platforms and things like that. We also do investigative pieces, especially during the winter when there's, you know, usually less protest activity. So we'll do a lot of stuff like FOIA requests, kind of the deep dives, things of that nature. So we've been going along since about 2015 and, and we got, I'd say, a fair amount of attention for certain projects we did, uh, such as covering the Dakota Access Pipeline. And we have a full length documentary called Black St. Killers about that that came out a few years ago. Uh, we also did a lot of work with uh, with white supremacist movement investigations. And we got, for example, in 2017, uh, the internal chats from the dis the Discord chats from Unite the Right in Charlottesville, Virginia, which came up in a lawsuit recently, which I helped cover a federal lawsuit against white supremacists. So we've done kind of an interesting number of different types of investigations. We, we do file a lot of FOIA requests. And personally, I've always had an interest in kind of the more esoteric side of state policy, you know, emergency powers, the military. Uh, my 
personal background includes the 2008 Republican National Convention when I was quite a bit younger and all the kind of emergency powers that were used in that is sort of a huge crackdown that happened in the area where I'm from. And so ever since then, I've had a very particular kind of keen interest in what happens in emergencies and what kind of emergency powers uh, get applied in different situations. So that was what sort of it was my background leading into this particular story. And the story we're going to be talking about is entitled January 6th Documents Reveal Plans to Overturn 2020 Election as Military Questions Deepen. And uh, the sort of uh, sub to that is Congress investigates military rule on January 6th. Generals warn of rogue military personnel in future coup attempts. And uh, that's at unicornriot.ninja. Uh, this is a really sort of complex story. It's a very long piece, a unicorn riot. Uh, so where do you think we should uh, start with this story? Well, we added a table of contents at the top so you can jump around in it because it's such a long post, which helps. Uh, but I would just, I guess I would say that for me, the way it came about was I saw that uh, essentially a kind of whistleblower had stepped forward, a man who is in the in the D.C. National Guard uh, as their sort of JAG officer named Earl Matthews. And he had submitted a long statement, a, a written piece, which really called out how the Army, the, the you know, the U.S. Army staff, uh, the Department of Defense inspector generals and those sort of high levels were kind of in his terms, sort of essentially spinning or misrepresenting what had happened on January 6th with the entire military response. And along with that came this uh, other file that was sort of a timeline that the National Guard had created, which really didn't jibe at all with the official accounts that had been released by the Pentagon about that whole flow of events. And so I started jumping into that and I started looking around because I wanted to say, okay, you know, what's he referring to? Can I find those documents? Um, and I just sort of was like, okay, let me just pull all these PDFs together. I, I didn't really think this would end up being such a long piece, but as it went on and on, I was like, oh my God, there's actually kind of a lot going on here that is worth attention, that's worth, you know, picking apart further. And so, but I also wanted to make a good sort of jumping off piece. So if someone wants to like really get a handle on this whole subject, they can use this one to, you know, look at the PDFs, look at, all of these primary source documents, because I think you find most media places won't ever attach like 10 PDF files to something. But I, I really feel like if you can mirror the documents, you can lay things out, then that kind of creates a good research basis. So if you're someone's a student or a professor or a researcher or, or you know, wants to take that deep dive, that was sort of my aim there. But But I didn't realize that this whole situation sprawled quite so deep. I mean, you know, I've been following what's, you know, been going on with the January 6th committees, you know, to some extent, sort of uh, looking, you know, more at the political level, the Roger Stone types and the, you know, uh, the Oath Keepers just had this, you know, sedition charge thing that just dropped uh, this week as well, which was, which was huge. And, but no one had really looked too carefully at this military level and this National Guard level until, until basically until this whistleblower, Colonel Matthews, was sort of throwing this out there, saying that this is all a serious problem, what's going on. And so that was sort of what led me to uh, jump into this extended story. And then once I started writing it in December, 
like one thing after another kept dropping and i was like oh my god i'm trapped in another huge moving target story like this is suddenly moving very fast a lot of stuff is coming out really fast about this a lot of documents subpoenas and it's kind of overwhelming right like it, it much as with the you know the Mueller RussiaGate stuff, you, you can get kind of lost in the details, and it's hard to sort of condense it down. But regardless, I was like, okay, let me just sort of peel back as many layers of this onion, sort of put those things on the table, try to you know get something that people can grasp onto. And what I did ultimately find, I think, was that there's just huge contradictions between the official story, the Pentagon story. And the D.C. National Guard story, which is that they were basically prepared to make quick moves in around the Capitol and they already had their equipment and they could have moved pretty quickly. And it seems very apparent that the command, which uh, consisted in particular, uh, Michael Flynn's younger brother, Charles Flynn, and another who's who is a general, a key general and another general, Walter Pyatt were essentially taking too long to uh, approve the deployment. They were sort of holding the National Guard back. And, and, and that in turn created a more perilous situation because then the crowd was more inclined over a pretty long stretch. So basically a four hour stretch, give or take, that made that you know right wing MAGA crowd more enticed to go into the Capitol. More things could have happened, right? Like, like a lot of, there was a lot of rolls of the dice on January 6th. And the fact that this National Guard timing was so sluggish uh, intensified the problems. And, and to me, it was pretty shocking, right? Because I've attended or helped cover as a producer many protests that have been very heavily policed. And so the idea that somewhere like the U.S. Capitol is so lightly guarded it seems very dissonant, right? Just compared to the many different types of protests that I've seen in my day. So, so, so that was sort of why I just was like, okay, this, you know, this subject really does actually deserve some very serious attention as a more, you know, a laser, try to bring some laser focus down into the details. And then besides the military level of it, obviously there were a number of other things that sort of surfaced in December, such as, a PowerPoint that Mark Meadows was circulating that involved. And that's the former White House chief of staff, just yes. just to clarify for people. Yeah. Right. And, and right. And there's so many titles in this, you know, oh, especially on the military side. It's it's like, oh God, how many bureaucrats can there be involved? But you know, Mark Meadows had this whole thing about declaring electronic voting in all states invalid, just kind of basically the argument in this set of PowerPoints that he was apparently circulating, which Liz Cheney, the U.S. rep from Wyoming, you know, was sort of talking about in the middle of December, you know, there there was clearly an idea that they could just sort of claim that, you know, the Chinese had broken all the state voting systems. And so everything should be kind of rehauled, re hauled over, reset, et cetera. Uh, and that dovetailed as well with stuff that Michael Flynn went around saying in December that they should just send in federalized military troops to take over state level election controls. And, and which, you know, it's hard to define exactly what martial law means in the American context. But I think that sending in federalized troops that are not under the control of a governor to take over a political function of a state government or a local county government 
you know, if it's not martial law, it's definitely an extreme federalization. It's it's like a it's a huge disruption of the political autonomy that a state is normally said to have and replacing it with a military function. And so that was very controversial. And, and Flynn was saying that stuff in December, promoting that stuff. And that led several, uh, you know, living defense secretaries to say that the military shouldn't become involved in American politics, in, in election processes, that they shouldn't do that. And that op-ed ran just a little while before January 6th, just a couple of days before in the Washington Post. And then again, and again, while I was in the middle of sort of wrapping up the process of writing this on, uh, I want to check the date, on December 17th, uh, three other generals, sorry, December 17th, a few weeks ago, 2021. So, you know, almost a year later, uh, generals Paul Eaton, Antonio Taguba, and Steve Anderson said that they were chilled to their bones at the thought of a coup succeeding next time. They warned of rogue units organizing among themselves to support a rightful commander in chief, warning, you know, a total breakdown of the chain of command along partisan lines from the top of the chain to the squad level could be significant in another insurrection if another insurrection insurrection occurred and it is not outlandish to say a military breakdown could lead to civil war which is a pretty serious statement you know to put out there right like this is not something that retired generals necessarily tend to say very freely and so that just again underscored like the fact that this military issue needs some serious attention because even if it didn't turn completely south this time around, you could see it happening again in, you know, in four years, in eight years, you know, it, 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 I think there's a lot more concern, not just among academics and activists, but in the American public in general, that, you know, problems of this nature need to be looked at. And I have, you know, done some analysis about coups in other countries. Like, how do they work? There, there are what's called auto golpes or self coups. There are, you know, coups where monarchists and militarists like take over governments. There are many coups that the CIA supported for decades and decades, where they would kind of like create uh, military to military contacts in different countries, intelligence contacts, business contacts. And I, I get, was going to yeah. add to that just real quickly. Yeah, you know. Uh, this type of coup, it wouldn't require like the agreement of all the, the brass in the military apparatus. You could always just have these sort of rogue elements that cause the issues. Yeah. And usually, I mean, that tends to kind of be how it works a lot of the time. It, it doesn't necessarily take like the entire Joint Chiefs of Staff to all or the equivalent in a country to sign off on a coup for it to happen. It just sort of involves you know certain precipitating factors taking over key locations like the u.s capitol uh another scenario which i think didn't get that much attention in the united states but in you know in 2016 there was a, a very major coup attempt in turkey hundreds of people died uh you know a, a chunk of the military uh, including uh, aviation wings like decided to tried to take over the country and used helicopters to attack the parliaments and the equivalent of the CIA. And th that was, which is honestly pretty shocking and destabilizing. And that's a NATO country. You know, that's not like a smaller country in some other continent. That's like a pretty important country. And, and, and I felt that, that that example is probably the most recent example of a fairly powerful country having a fairly serious coup attempt. And so I, I felt that, 
we, that we should really dive into these factors and, and look at them in great detail because if you don't, then any problems can definitely get worse. And even if you don't get a full coup, it can anything like this can still really start to distort uh, governance in a country quite differently than you know stuff like elections, power going back and forth through normal, you know, formal channels. And another thing I'll just mention, you know, is that aside from coups where entirely government just gets taken over, over controlled there's a lot there's a pattern of other types of militaristic activity which where a lot of people aren't in the loop right and and different policies get imposed and people don't know what's going on and to name a small example there was these military exercises that made a ton of noise and really stressed out a lot of people in the twin cities and you know i went to a demo this was quite a while. This is before Unicorn Riot started, but I went to a demo of people complaining about this because they were, you know, using these Black Hawk helicopters, weird urban exercises, which they kind of do a lot of for reasons that are not super obvious, and they keep doing them. And and it was very apparent that like the city councils were kept cut out of the loop. You know what I mean? It's like there's a lot of situations where where weird kind of military stuff or things of that nature go on, and a lot of public officials don't know what's happening. Some public officials do know, and many don't, and many are cut out of the loop. And, and so that's another you know kind of concern that I have. And so when it comes to stuff with the military and domestic military activity, uh, it's very clear that a lot of the time, a lot of public officials, members of Congress, you know, state legislators, city council people, county officials, they don't know what's going on, right? And there's sort of an asymmetry of information about this stuff. And, you know, we're in a country where, what, $760 billion a year get put into the Pentagon. That doesn't even include the nuclear weapons, the, the interest on the debt, or, or the VA health system, right? But it's, it's an enormous amount of money, and it's really pretty opaque a lot of the time. And we're, you know, with the pandemic, uh, emergency measures come into effect on, on a whole range of different things. Uh, when the pandemic started, I, I started trying to research more emergency measures. And it's the military hasn't been super active about that, but they do have their own contingency plans for pandemic influenza and stuff that I've tried to research before the pandemic um, as well. We're, we're sort of talking about like continuity of government planning. Yes. Yes, that's that's definitely a major part of it. Continuity of government. And, and another one that is not so familiar to people is called Defense Support of Civil Authorities or DSCA. And another one that is called Civil Disturbance Operations or, you know, Managing Civil Disturbances. And these are not subjects that most people pay any attention to, you know, like I'm a longtime Peter Dale Scott fan. Right. So like I've, I've had Peter on the show. This is why I, I brought yeah. up COG. And yes. I remember when I had Peter on, I, he, he was, you know, so happy because I, I said, uh, could you tell my listeners about Rex 84? Because we have a history of of these things, but they're not really yes. talked about. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I'm and I really appreciate the research that he did over many years and and frankly, I think that like there's a level of, from a historical perspective, uh, episodes like Iran Contra, which is sort of thought to be about you know seven years long, the activity plus the cover up time, give or take, then later prosecutions. But it seems like a subtext of the Reagan years was that they were really worried about domestic unrest, right? And then this sort of huge kind of mythologized Rex eighty four thing kind of 
expanded out of, you know, scattered reports uh, that ran here and there in, by different journalists that made it pretty apparent that they that the authorities were definitely worried that people would just rebel against these, you know, sprawling crimes that were happening in the Reagan years. And that was also an artifact of how not to go off too far down the historical track, but a lot of that was developed in California, like when Reagan was governor and they wanted to get control of groups like the Black Panthers, build up police militarization and SWAT teams and just sort of, you know, forms of population control to to basically make it easier for, you know, the capitalist system to keep exploiting the population and not have massive protests that would force them to change things. And I think and I, I think you could even take that back, yeah. not, not to interrupt you, but you, you can even take a lot of this stuff back to. I think even uh, the 1960s with um, I think it's called Operation Garden Plot. Yes. And so what I what I touch on here is that there is like a continuity to understand about. There's a continuity of continuity of government plans. And and so Garden Plot was a set of plans developed for, you know, each branch of the military to kind of standardize their interface in case uh, in case the civil authorities collapse or other dramatic things happen in, in a way that is involves usually the idea is kind of large scale rioting like we did see in the late 60s in the United States. And so garden plot got standardized, I believe, after the Kerner Commission kind of evaluated the causes of the riots and they wanted to create a more standard system. And what I discovered in my research later was that in 2002, Garden Plot was replaced by something called Con Plan 3502, Civil Disturbance Operations. And no one's been able to get documents about the internal workings of that. But it was basically created uh, after 9-11. Uh, the U.S. Northern Command, NORTHCOM, uh, is sort of the combatant command for North America, U.S., Canada, Mexico. And so they renumbered and sort of reorganized all their plans. And so whenever there is a civil disturbance, in theory, um, a federalized one with a federal mobilization would more or less co follow Con Plan 3502, but also smaller ones where they're just under a more conventional mobilization under a governor would still follow a lot of the tactics, uh, you know, having, you know, riot gear and shields and chemical dispersants and things like that. And so, so there is a doctrine out there and there's also like a very large, like specific plan for federalized troops. And those are kind of two different things, but they're related. Right. And so what we understood from this, you know, the George Floyd uprising, the summer, you know, touched off in Minneapolis, you know, Unicorn Riot was intricately involved in covering that. That obviously saw National Guard mobilizations in more than 30 states, a huge mobilization. And what happened to D.C. was was pretty controversial. Uh, and I mentioned I sort of set aside a, a part of that in the story because that National Guard, that military activity was very extensive in D.C. in the summer. And. And so, so, and it's true that um, one thing I didn't quite touch on the story, but it's true that the DC city government did not really want the National Guard to be as aggressive in the future as they were in the summer, right? They did send a letter to the Pentagon saying, hey, don't, please don't, you know, do all these aggressive things without the go ahead from the civil authorities, that is the Metropolitan Police, the, you know, the Capitol Police, stuff like that. The city, 
didn't want the military to be so aggressive. But in terms of January 6th, what's really important to realize is there is a timeline. The D.C. National Guard has its own timeline showing that uh, that the you know the metropolitan police wanted the national guard mobilization the dc capitol police a separate force wanted the mobilization they were like hey let's get going come down here reinforce our guys so i'm i'm a little all over the place but to bring it back to jan 6 like the, the what's what's really striking about this was that the the dc guard had been so busy in the summer and their commanding officers even had made sure that the riot gear was still in their in their trucks, like in their you know Humvees and their you know usual trucks. They still had their equipment generally with them on January sixth, and yet and, and they and they certainly knew where the capital was. Like they know they have you know other pl smaller planning templates where they could have pretty quickly gone in and that was all done within the guard right that's that's the argument matthews is saying is the guard has this plan you know we were already busy this summer you know we had all our stuff together like we could have just brought our people down pretty quickly taken direction and command essentially from the capitol police and the metropolitan police and we they didn't need some other level of planning rigmarole but uh you know walter pyatt and charles flynn those two generals argued to Congress that the that the staff level of the army, this upper level of the army needed to do all of this planning and needed to, to run around, to collect people, to sort of tell them what gear to get, tell them this and that. So they argued that this upper level of the army had to do all of this stuff on January 6th. And Matthews is saying, no, that's not true. We have staff. We have the plans already. We have the gear already. We can literally pretty much just need to get a hold of the chief on the phone, go down there, you know, find a place to stage and and go. And so th that question of what happened in those roughly four hours where the, you know, where the upper level of the military is spinning its wheels and on this conference call, which uh, seems like no audio recordings of this exist, at least that we can access, but there's, you know, conflicting accounts of sort of a conference call of all the multiple parties. So it had the, those National Guard people, it had the army staff, it had the, you know, the, the municipal or the metropolitan police, it had the DC police, and they were like, get down here, like pretty, you know, relatively frantic, or we need action now. And the, uh, the other dimension of it, too, is that this acting Defense Secretary Miller had basically changed orders kind of at the last second to say that orders had to kind of go through him, right? That like the DC National Guard command couldn't have the latitude that it used to have to move its people around. They wanted it to go all the way up the chain. And again, and so that seems to be what happened on the call. They're like, no, no, we have to go up the chain. We have to talk to acting DOD Secretary Miller. Like we can't, uh, we can't just do this quickly. And so, although I would just not to go too far down in the details, but another thing that Matthew said was that like the memos got changed again at the last second. And so the one that everybody saw going around actually got restricted even further. And that was one where I was never able to find the primary document or rather the revisions of it that were changed on either the fourth or the fifth right beforehand. So, so there's certain things about those standing orders that I don't think we necessarily do have the primary documents on, but but that's the level of detail, right, that I, I do think is worth focusing on because 
you know, if other things had worked out differently, these things would have had an even huge, bigger impact. And, and so, so that's sort of where I felt it was really important to dive down into. And then besides that, you know, um, I, I sort of backed it out and I was like, okay, let's, let's look a little bit at, at, you know, at, Gen at general Charles Flynn, right. Who seems to have a pretty reasonable down the middle reputation generally, but he's also Michael Flynn's brother. And Michael Flynn was fired from the Defense Intelligence Agency chief position by Barack Obama. And then he was briefly the national security advisor of the United States. And he was fired by Donald Trump uh, early in his term. It's also a bit, uh, I think, QAnon adjacent as well, right? Right. And, you know, and, and so he has definitely facilitated building a whole collection of kind of people that you know, put him into this whole mythology of QAnon stuff, um, of sort of very hard line sort of, I don't want to say kind of Christian nationalist or Christian revanchist, like very conspiratorial kind of alternate reality stuff. And, and so that crowd of people has put him into their mythology. And so he has gone around to kind of rally people to say, hey, like, you got to be my army of digital soldiers. Like, we got to, you know, we're... He used all this terminology about Jericho. You can you can see the the full speech that he gave uh, just a couple of weeks before January six at a very Christian like sort of Jericho rally thing that happened in D.C. So he was really right there in the mix with all these things, and and so so his you know his younger brother was this top army commander, and and then when I was looking through it again, I saw something that I'd kind of forgotten about, which was that. There was a photograph which clearly features Michael Flynn and his brother Charles and Sidney Powell, who was the architect of a lot of Trump's, you know, very unorthodox and I don't, I don't know what the word in term, legal terminology, but very much like off the wall legal tactics to try to overturn the election. Sidney Powell was right at the heart of that, right? At this, you know, the same time after the election as this stuff was going on, but he, she was also Michael Flynn's attorney. And so Flynn got pardoned, uh, I believe it was after the election while Trump was still in office. And so I find this photograph that has Michael Flynn, Sidney Powell and Charles Flynn in it. Um, and there's another older gentleman who some people have speculated uh, is this man named General Singlob, and I'll come back to Singlob in a minute, but who I think is important in terms of context. But but I just looked at it. I went back and forth on it. I was like, I don't feel like I can confirm this guy is Singlob. Like Singlob has kind of a distinct look to him, and this guy could be him, but, but it doesn't matter necessarily. Uh, I'll come back to that. Anyway, so this photo had been published on Twitter uh, by another Flynn brother, they got several brothers, uh, Joseph Flynn, and, and he published it around October 3rd, 2020. And it's so, so it has this, you know, this army commander, Charles, Michael, Powell, and Sidney Powell. And so those are really two key sides of this whole equation, this military emergency management side of what happens only a couple months later, and this very highly partisan, super hardline side they're right there in the same, you know, moment in the same meeting somewhere in DC, the, the, the Washington monument is behind them, you know? And so just like that meeting alone seems like it should be of some level of interest to Congress and journalists and 
whoever is trying to understand the dynamics here, and, and especially because when that photo was taken, you know, Michael Flynn was still going through a huge federal prosecution for perjury. And he got pardoned by Trump, which which led him off of it. But Flynn was under an enormous amount of pressure in the courts for his actions. And he got let off by Trump at the time that photo was taken and published. And so to me, I, I thought that that, again, jumped out as to like something that is worthy of closer examination. And, and then while I was kind of wrapping the story up, I, I saw that, you know, the New Republic had published a long feature asking, you know, why does Michael Flynn's long game? Like, is he yeah, that trying was the, to... the piece by Matt Farwell, I believe. Yes. Yeah, yes, he's yes, a very Farwell. good reporter. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and Farwell, you know, was a friend of Michael Hastings and he knew Flynn pretty well. He'd, you know, been out in the Afghanistan thing. So he actually had a, a more of an inside loop of, of how Flynn ticks. Right. And, and so, you know, he pointed out that Flynn has been kind of out in the American political wilderness, building a network with the help of people like Doc, uh, people like General John Singlob. And when I saw that name come up, and I saw people speculating that the old man in the picture was Singlob, which he might or might not be. Uh, you know, it got me thinking, right? Because it's like I do try to understand the Cold War and the history of covert war in the United States and the CIA. Well, yeah, and, and Singlob, I think, is uh, you'll get into this, but he's an old figure from Iran Contra. Yes, yes, he was a front man. He was General Singlob was essentially kind of a front man for Iran Contra, a highly visible public figure who got pushed out of the army during the Carter administration and probably worked with people to get Carter out of office in the October surprise. We don't have that proven, but he was clearly in that crowd of guys, right? The October surprise where these hostages were being held, uh, you know, under Iranian influence, right? Late in the Carter administration, the, the hostage crisis, and they were kind of held back and Carter looked very weak and then Reagan came in, and as Reagan's being inaugurated, these hostages are walking to the airport, which was an odd episode to be followed by years of the Iran-Contra scandal to follow. And, and so Singlob, during Iran-Contra, was the front man. He was sort of running a number of organizations that were moving materiel around. They tended to deny it was weapons, but, you know, they were supporting you know, militias that were, you know, fighting the Sandinistas in Central America, stuff like that. Because There's also a connection too uh, with, you'll get into this, I guess, but the, the World Anti-Communist League. Yes. And, and so he was a, a key figure in the World Anti-Communist League. And I went back and looked at uh, a chunk of the Contra hearings the, the famous ones in 87. And he's talking about the World Anti-Communist League and, and how it's organized and how he's, you know, it was basically an attempt to kind of create chapters in many different countries to then funnel money and resources to right-wing forces to try to subvert governments that they thought were too leftist or too communist or whatever. But it was very, it was very classically super hard line, late Cold War network, right? And it, it was, it, it had a number of, senior ex-Nazi SS officers, sorry, ex-Nazi in quotes, like Otto Scorsese and other truly notorious rogues gallery figures of the Cold War were involved in this larger network, right? And, you know, from there, there's a lot of different accounts about drug trafficking and how they financed what they were doing for guns and stuff like that. It's a, it is a fascinating history, but this man was 
very clearly on the public front of it. And so, um, and so as, as Farwell said, he has a priceless Rolodex, right, of favors that he can call in, connections, network, the old network going back, because the man is 100 years old. You know, he helped found the CIA. You know, he was part of the OSS and, and the army. He's sort so of like the last living remnant of the, exactly. the sort of Cold War covert empire. Yeah. Well, right. Exactly. And, you know, people talk a lot about Henry Kissinger, but this was a man who thought that Henry was a hippie, dippy liberal based on, you know, almost a communist, right? Like he thought Henry was very soft. The state department was very soft and, and that a hard line, extreme hard line was and imposing that in any given way and, and really overturning a lot of elections, right? Like, I really think it's fair to argue that Singlob doesn't really believe that democratic elections should have their results respected if there's a way to do a coup that is acceptable and to organize that logistically. I think that that's really a hallmark of his overall career. And, and so the idea that Singlob had then seen the not just Michael Flynn, but the Flynn family as people that he wanted to kind of support, I thought that that jumped out at me because I was like, okay, what's what's like the interface between General Singlob and and Charles Flynn, which which is an unknown question, right? But you know, Farwell is saying it's not just Michael Flynn, but the whole Flynn family, you know, building power, being tight with Singlob. I think that that's worth referencing, and I just want to mention that another th pattern which really jumped out at me working on this was that the. Uh, the groups that are kind of close to the Council for National Policy, and in particular, uh, the the successor organization to the Phyllis Schlafly Eagle Forum, which is for, now for my listeners, real quick, to explain what uh, the Council for National Policy is, and then uh, who Phyllis Schlafly was, uh, just sure. in brief. Yeah, and we've done a couple stories touching on it. Um, so when you think of the influence of people like uh, Betsy DeVos and uh, Eric Prince and, uh, you know, sort of really wealthy, very conservative families like that, they've supported Council for National Policy for a very long time or been in its top leadership. It started in the early 1980s, early in the Reagan years as a kind of clearinghouse between the conservative uh, financial people, you know, the rich families that can bankroll stuff. And then the movement conservatives, like the, the Family Research Council, for example, or any of those other, uh, you know. It's basically the think, think tanks. I was going to yeah. say, it's basically the way Ann Nelson, who's written a whole book on, on yes. this, described it. She basically has said, you know, the, the CNP sort of paints itself as like trying to be a almost like a conservative or right wing equivalent to the CFR. But that makes no sense because they're way more secretive. Uh, than the CFR, the Council on Foreign Relations. Yeah. And also they're, they're essentially a networking hub between uh, business interests, uh, the Christian right, and even, you know, I, I would say militia type elements. Yeah, that's that's a better summary. Exactly. It, it's something that isn't really intended to have much PR on its own, but it works as a clearinghouse, kind of gets people together, the trust network, the lunches, you know, that kind of communications grapevine, which then leads to funding. And then, and then there's other organizations like a donors trust, for example, is one that's also been talked about in the context of things like January 6, which helps like anonymize funding going into these different orgs and projects. So, so with the CNP and, and, and so Phyllis Schlafly, uh, 
no longer with us, uh, was a major conservative organizer. She really came up in the 70s, blocking the Equal Rights Amendment for women and sort of and, and being also like, sort of uh, she she played footsies or was involved with uh, the John Birch Society types, although yes. she, there was sort of a revisionist history where she was able to uh, sort of paint it that that wasn't the case. But it's come out since then. She was very involved with the Bircher sort of right. Yeah, the, the, the Birchers is, is another layer to this as well, right? The World Anti-Communist League and the, and the kind of people Singlob was with, a bunch of the leadership there, Larry McDonald, other types like that, Birchers, were involved in what he was doing back in the day. So so what we see today really is a descendant of all these different older you know, conservative networks. And so what's really struck me was that a lot of the stuff about January 6th really is intersecting with this Eagle Forum organization, the Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. Sorry, they dropped the word forum due to some, you know, org dispute thing, but Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. And then uh, Ed Martin is the leader of that organization. He's been subpoenaed by the January 6th committee. Uh, and, and when I was digging around, I found a photo of Ed Martin, Michael Flynn, and General Singlob that was posted... Uh, after the 2020 election, it was posted in November. So I was like, well, there you have it. Michael Flynn and Singlob trying to be very visibly, you know, public and meeting out there. You know, I was like, that's another connection, <laughs> right? Like once you go looking, because once I saw that these kind of characters was involved, were involved, I just thought, oh man, you know, all of this stuff really does tie pretty closely back to a lot of shadowy episodes in American history. And this really is a new, you know, iteration of what a lot of weird stuff that these networks have gotten up to. So I almost kind of thought of it, it's a little bit like uh, if there's a blockchain of shady stuff in American history being pulled by right wingers, right? Finding General Singlob right in the middle of these networks almost kind of like connects all the other transactions back to all these previous decades, right? Like it, it really does sort of strengthen the link to, it, it, it makes it less of just a one-off, it makes it more of a product of those networks. And, and, and I really think that that's a tenable way to look at this, just because if you look at the personalities that are involved, uh, Ali Alexander, he's been another January 6th, you know, key person who went and, you know, testified. Uh, and he was at a Eagle, at a Phyllis Schlafly Eagle event. Uh, you know, that's, an, you know, people like, I think Scott Pressler, you know, so there were a number of these other people popping up at the Eagle events in the couple years before January 6th as well. So I just think that like th that that should direct our focus back to that uh, yeah to, to that network that pre-existing network of hardline conservatives that are very pretty powerful and, and mainline uh, and, and I think that that get, getting into this I I didn't really realize that that was the direction that it would lead me to uh, but I think I'm not alone in that assessment but I think this was just a different way to come at it because you know connecting the Flynn brothers. And, and saying, okay, Charles Flynn, like, what has your brother been doing? Why were you guys meeting in, uh, up in October? Did Sidney Powell say stuff to you? Like, you know, it's just, it's like that probably deserves more attention, right? Like, anyway. And especially since these aren't, you know, when I first mentioned this article uh, to a friend, um, you know, they were like, well, you know, are they talking about like, low-ranking sort of figures and i said no this is we're talking about players 
Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's you, you can't really get higher in the conservative movement than like the CNP network, really. Like, I don't know who would you'd think of as above it. Right. And, and so I think that, it, you know, it's always instructive to kind of look at the networks that aren't that interested in, in gaining PR for themselves, usually. Although we also did did do a story uh, contributed uh, by someone to our platform about the ruckus that's happened in school boards. And a lot of that is also closely linked to CNP groups. America's Frontline Doctors is essentially a CNP group. And so to sort of that sort of wave of tension that happened over the last year at school board meetings, at county board meetings, a lot of that was actually uh, coming out of groups that were organized out of the same general, loosely speaking, the same general network. And so but, but even just with yeah. the military angle, I mean, yes, Char- Charles Flynn isn't some nobody. Yeah, right. And now he's the commander of the U.S. Pacific Command. And, you know, so, some people are a little concerned that, like, well, if his intentions aren't good, right, like he could cause a lot of trouble in the Pacific theater if he felt like it on any given day, you know. And so we'll see. I, we'll see what happens there, I guess. There has been a lot of t- tension uh, or, you know, with China and everything and, and we'll see what happens. But yeah, this is, this is very, you know, this, this top level question is something where there isn't a lot of visibility. And, you know, one of the things that Peter Dale Scott has talked about for a long time is that, you know, in the high level communications networks, when these type of things happen, there isn't much transparency, right? Like, like the white house has a radio system, which has certainly been used in in anything that you might call a continuity of government thing, like JFK assassination or 9/11 or Iran Contra or uh, other incidents, right? Like, like there are communication systems in the government that never really have their FOIA material disclosed. And likewise, you know, there's this conference call, and what happened on this conference call is a big subject of debate. The, the conference call on January 6th, where uh, the military commanders are there, you know, Flynn and Pyatt are on the call, the, the chiefs of police of D.C. and the Capitol are on the call, the National Guard in D.C. is on the call, and this timeline that that came out at the same time as Matthew's memo is just so different than the timeline that had been given to Congress. That the well, Army What are the has... biggest conflicts in the timeline? Well, just basically that it, it's set up in such a way that it blames the National Guard for kind of screwing around. It basically says the delay isn't on the Army side. It's essentially on the National Guard side. And and from there, there's a lot of quibbling about, okay, when did, uh, you know, the secretary, the defense secretary and the secretary of the Army, you know, what moves did they make when, you know, it's a lot of sort of details like that. But but the the most important upshot is that it really puts the blame on the National Guard for being too slow. And what another thing Matthews raised was that the inspector general staff, they never talked to all those top aides on the National Guard side. It seems like they really only talked to Army staff people. And another thing, too, is that the Army had its own timeline that it released, or sorry, that it didn't release. And so Matthews was sort of saying like, hey, like there's this other timeline that the army made, which isn't the National Guard one. And that tries to make the army look good and competent. And this document is not available. And then right before I launched, I saw that uh, there is a website called Just Security, which is run by 
the NYU Law School. And so I've got a link to that. Uh, look at the justsecurity.org January 6th clearinghouse page. That's like the last link in the story. And, and those guys did get this army document that the army wasn't sharing, right? And so again, you're just like, why did they make it so hard, right? Like, like every bureaucracy tries to kind of cover its ass, you know, and that's predictable. We expect that whenever anything weird happens in America, you got to factor in the FBI and whoever are going to cover their ass, but it doesn't make it easier to figure out what happened. It doesn't make it easier for legislators to come up with policy responses. And, and, and the fact that the army, you know, sits on this document doesn't make it available. It doesn't help. You know, another thing, which, and it, if someone finds this, let me know. But like after that bad stuff happened in the summer of 2020, when the military and the national guard, you know, they weren't, they weren't well-trained in civil disturbances, the units that came into DC during the George Floyd protests and the defense secretary ordered a review Esper who was forced to resign by Trump after the election Esper. And I haven't been able to find that review. So maybe it exists, but I haven't found it. And that's like, was the national guard used in an appropriate way? Like they used like, you know, uh, like a medical helicopter to basically buzz a crowd in DC. That was probably the most visibly controversial incident that happened, but there was a lot of other weird stuff that happened in that one. And so that was pretty tense, uh, before. Um, and so it, it's just, it's just frustrating that they're always, so secretive about these things that you have to dig around so hard to find things like these timelines. And, and, and that frankly, all this stuff is pretty esoteric to most people and most people have no idea about it. So I just, I just really wanted to get that together. Um, another thing I'll mention just in terms of the documents, if you go down to the end of the document or my, the end of my story, you know, there's a huge pile of, of FOIAs and data requests and manuals. I just tried to sort of mirror everything in. And I just wanted to say, if people want to learn more about, you know, Defense Support of Civil Authorities, DSCA, uh, and uh, Civil Disturbance Operations, CDO, um, there's something called the Domestic Operational Law Handbook for Judge Advocates that is, I think they do it about, about once a year, maybe every two years. And, and that's released by uh, an office that kind of trains JAG officers based in Charlottesville, actually. And, uh, and that's where I found a lot of stuff that in the footnotes and things about, uh, about this con plan 3502, about a lot of stuff about defense support of civil authorities. And, uh, and that was very helpful because if you don't have that, it, it's just, it's so hard to figure out to set into this kind of research and get a handle on it. But, but I just feel like if things are getting less stable in this country, this type of thing is definitely worth attention because, you know, most months it doesn't really matter that much, but then when things get weird, you know, as there's emergencies and whatever, it can be very helpful to understand it a little better. So. And I mean, you also mentioned in the article that, you know, I, I think it was an email um, that Meadows sent out was invoking uh, national emergency measures. Um, and th there's yeah. other documents that point towards this question of, of continuity of operations. Yes, yes. And, and, and continuity of operations even comes up in that DC National Guard timeline because Congress had to evacuate the Capitol. They had to activate their plan to skate out of there and recompile out at a, at a base somewhere else, a military base. Um, but yeah, Meadows, you know, there was we don't have everything of what Meadows was sending around. We just sort of 
I think really have the summaries that politicians started talking about in the middle of, of December through this committee. Uh, but basically, the way Politico put it was Mark Meadows indicated in a January 5th email, the National Guard was on standby to protect pro-Trump people, quote unquote, and that, you know, this exchange is of high interest to investigators probing if Trump played a delay and uh, a role in the delay, right? Like, so they, to summarize it, right? Like the question is, was the president leaning on the defense secretary or other people not to hold back the military, to hold back the national guard, right? Like, sorry, I kind of buried the lead there. There's a lot of leads to be buried in this thing, but I think that's important is to understand like was Trump holding back the military to kind of create a chaotic situation? Because again, what we see with the new indictments this week is that it seems like around the different wings of this plan, apart apart from what the National Guard might have done, it seems like a lot of people wanted to create enough chaos to buy places like right-wing state legislatures in Arizona or, or Georgia, whatever, time to try to withdraw their elector slates like like let enough chaos happen to cause a couple elector slates to fall through and then that would you know reverse the election in theory right like 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 roughly speaking i think that's kind of where the big picture has been going in the last few weeks and that's worth considering because it can certainly happen again like it you know it, it it could have gone a lot worse than it did and, you know, I guess it's lucky it didn't, but it could definitely happen again. And, and it wouldn't even necessarily have to be the Republicans doing it. Like I could see a very hardline Democrat doing something like potentially, right? Like it, it's not even something we should necessarily look at in a partisan way necessarily, but it's just like, we really got to try to understand these systems as carefully as we can. And, and then hopefully get that out on the table so that everyone understands what's happening. Cause it's all very obscure. This is stuff that is way off the radar of normal mainstream politics. And I guess it's like, I'm glad to see that it seems like it's taken seriously. You know, it's, it seems like, like they actually care this is, this happened and, and that it's worth investigating and, and, you know, filing contempt charges if people aren't willing to talk about it or give their documents, you know, um, so, you know, we'll see, but I, I'm not terrifically optimistic that things are going to relax, right? Because it's like now there's more of a blueprint available for overturning elections than there used to be, right? Like, but I mean, look, I was in high school when the Florida election got in a toss up, right? And, you know, we talk about Roger Stone and the Brooks you know, Roger, Brothers riot. Right. And Roger Stone loves to claim credit for the Brooks Brothers riot which was when a bunch of people rushed the Broward County counting office, and then they had to shut down that day. And then that ended up being the number, essentially, I believe that they got stuck with, right? Because again, it was like play for time on one side and have a street fight or whatever. And that'll sort of screw up the bureaucrats counting. And then hopefully you can have an aggressive enough legal strategy on the other wing to like block it or whatever. And, and so, so the Brooks, so for my adult life, my teenage life into my adult life, right? Like this has not been absent from U.S. politics. And, you know, frankly, you can look at the 2004 election, which I thought actually had some very serious issues in, in Ohio, because whenever, because it's true, whenever there's purely electronic voting that has no paper trail, 
it, it's very difficult to design any system that's particularly airtight, you know, uh, that is not subject to databases being rewritten and stuff like that. If it's, yeah, purely, it, it, if it's, it's purely electronic, like, I'm sorry, that's just how it is, you know? It's interesting because uh, I've talked to Bob Petrakis, mm-hmm. uh, who's one of the journalists in Ohio that really uh, deeply covered that. There's other people, I think, that cover it too now, like um, Jennifer Kahn. Um, so yeah. th- there's a lot of people that are dealing with that issue. Right. And, and, I, and I think like, I think it's at least better understood now than it was 15 years ago that paper ballots, you know, preclude that stuff. And so maybe these things are a little less likely to happen now. We'll see. Um, but it just seems like so many of these different levels are in play in a way that they didn't used to be. And, and so, you know, so we'll see what happens next. And besides that, if I want to go even farther into deep politics stuff, uh, you know, it's, it's always interesting to wonder and hard to know for sure, but like the NSA collects a lot of domestic signals in this country. And did the NSA get stuff like a copy of, that conference call on January 6th between the military, the national guard and the police, like, do they, does the NSA have a copy of that audio? Like really they don't, (laughs) you know, like that's always a huge question in U S politics is what is this huge national security system actually have the data on? Um, A friend of mine is, is fond of pointing out that uh, Luis Mensch, blew the secrecy of the FISA warrant on Carter Page. Like she got a tip from somebody and outed the fact that like they were doing a a high profile warrant on on Carter Page. And it's just like, how many episodes like that have happened that we don't even know about? (laughs) You know, like how many different things like that have played out? And it's so it's really hard to say, but I just have to kind of point out that like, apart from dueling written versions of one conference call, it seems kind of improbable that there's no actual physical recordings of it, but maybe there aren't within the legal system, but there maybe are above the legal system is possible. Um, It's possible with a lot of this stuff, but that might not be introducible as court evidence. So fruit of the poison tree, as they say. So anyway, it goes pretty deep, but uh, I just, I just, I was just glad in a way that, by jumping into this and, 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 and also having the support of my unicorn riot colleagues who were like, you know, kind of like, you know, wh- where are you coming from in this? But they helped make this a much more understandable piece because it was really hard to try to wrap my head around this and make it, get it across to people in a way. Um, but it's just, you know, it, I, I just, I was glad to see a, a good response, right. That like that people are, still interested in stuff like this that they actually do feel it's worth attention and not just like ignoring you know because i just i just feel it's going to be with us for the decades to come weird stuff of this nature will be worth looking at so so the last thing and i i know we've gone really long here and i did not interject as much because i i just felt like you could summarize it much better than i could because it it, it is difficult to wrap one set around and i think it goes all over the place a lot of time on it it goes everywhere oh my god the 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 issue that comes up for me and uh, uh, Joseph Flatley, um, who I mentioned earlier from Field State Update, uh, sort of brings up these issues in relation to your bringing up the uh, Flynn Singlob connection. You know, when you think about January 6th and then you think about Flynn and you think about Singlob, you, you think about, you know, uh, Singlob's involvement in quote unquote low intensity operations, uh, Flynn's, you know, 
wanting digital armies or digital soldiers. Uh, and also you start thinking in terms of what we call the, the covert empire of the Cold War. You know, you had all these, I would say, anti-democratic covert operations in Vietnam, the Philippines, Angola, and elsewhere. You know, the Phoenix program being one example of that. And when you look at some of this stuff in relation to January 6th, one begins to wonder, have the chickens come home to roost? Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that, that's always kind of been the question whenever anything weird happens in the United States is like how much of this is just like the instruments that, you know, U.S. intelligence created to manipulate other countries' domestic politics just looping back again. The blowback theory, chickens coming home to roost, et cetera. And, and, and you know, personally, I don't think that Singlob was the kind of guy who needed to like sit there and direct every wing of this. I think he's more like a senior spiritual leader, probably of the movement. And I think he has been. But, but I think what's for, important, yeah. not, not to interrupt you, but I think what's important is I think people like Singlob, I think people, especially like Michael Flynn, and there's other figures I would put in this. I think there's a lot of figures within the both military and intelligence world, or, or at least a fair enough number of figures uh, that I could name, that I think they think we're at war. I think someone like Michael Flynn thinks yeah. we're at war. Um, yes. And, you know, he's willing to do anything to uh, win that war. And I, I think he thinks the war is at home uh, just as much as it is abroad. Yeah, and I think that it became very clear to me coming into the 2020 election that a lot of people don't really think of people that aren't on their side as being even like legitimate voters, right? Like, like the way that they think about people in large cities is that they don't even necessarily really exist, you know, or, or they don't, they don't really count as full citizens. Like I think um, one writer said, you know, uh, especially for black people, citizenship is almost treated as like provisional in the United States. And anything beyond that is just basically black people being uppity. Right. Like, and I think that that is how a lot of these hardliners really do look at American politics. And so, in terms of war, right, and escalation, right, it, there's always an element of brinkmanship in politics and, and division, you know. But, but I think it is pretty clear that there's a pretty deep seated belief that, like, look, we can get something here. Like, if there's power on the table and we have a lever, we can take it. Right. Like like they're just uh, I think from their perspective, they just think they're being like realistic strategists about that. But from the perspective of everybody else, when it whether it's something on the scale of a Brooks Brothers riot at a single county recount, you know, election department or 20 years later, a much larger, huge capital riot or many other, you know, in between incidents. I think that that is becoming normalized, right? And so guys like the Proud Boys or whoever are then trying to hook up with the Roger Stones or whoever, right? Guys like that are trying to operate in parallel, right? And and you saw that, to be too cliche, but you saw that in Nazi Germany where the SA uh, militia was sort of one hand of a cat's paw for, you know, more conservative forces in the society, and I think that the Proud Boys and the Roger Stones are sort of trying to echo that one-two level of division, right? And and that isn't to say it's more important to understand one side than the other of it. Uh, it's important to understand both sides and how they coordinate and how they work together. And as further January 6th 
stuff goes on. We look at these so-called war rooms that were coordinating stuff at the Willard Hotel. You know, Roger Stone was there. Other key players were there in these different rooms doing different things. Um, and that and that was also a crossover, right? Because Oathkeeper guys were definitely going around with Roger Stone on January 6th, right? And so it seems like maybe the goal with the DOJ, we'll see if they get anywhere. I have don't have a ton of faith in the DOJ, but you know, they did put up the seditious conspiracy charges this week. And so we'll see. Are they gonna roll someone like the Oath Keepers leadership into saying Roger Stone? wanted us to do this right like and roger stone was he getting direction from the president to do this right like like that that type of question and getting that nailed down it feels like that's where this might go but but you know maybe the clock is ticking and we won't find out but i just find that it's all you know i'm just glad that everybody is actually sort of you know, taking that pretty seriously, you know, because because a lot of times, like when you hear about something like like for example, the 2004 Ohio uh, election thing, and and what Fatrakis was among a very few number of people that covered that thing went went way under the radar, right? And, and frankly, because the mainstream media doesn't always like to contemplate things getting weird, right? They don't have an analytical framework that that stuff sl- well, or, or they. Into. I, I think the other issue is I, I think sometimes the mainstream media thinks. And I, I think this is why to this day there are mainstream media elements that look down upon even someone like Daniel Ellsberg, who's pretty well respected overall. I, I think there's mainstream media elements that view uh, whistleblowing or asking questions about election integrity as as undermining faith in the institutions, and that will lead to even bigger problems. That... Yeah, in, in the short term, maybe, but I think in oh, the I'm long term, I'm not saying I agree with them. I'm oh, not yeah, saying yeah, I yeah. agree with. Yeah, yeah. My response to those people is, you can ignore these things in the short term, but they won't get better. You know, they'll keep increasing. Anything will keep increasing in magnitude if it just gets ignored. If it's at this level of severity, and again, I think it's like, it's great to look at other countries and what has happened in other countries when they get destabilized. What are the features of that? what networks start to operate in extra judicial ways and stuff like that. It's interesting, you know, Germany in post-World War II has had sort of a a constitutional police office or something, which in theory is supposed to collect the fascists and other, you know, fringe groups from militarizing, from doing things. And they have busted like the equivalent of SWAT teams that were going super hardcore Nazi and, and dissolving them, you know, like that in, I think the state of Hesse, pardon my pronunciation, but Hesse state, I think had like a major scandal go down where its police were, you know, really out there and they all got disbanded. Right. And so this stuff happens in countries that are not in quote unquote, the third world or just wherever, like it happens in major countries, things happen in Germany, in Turkey. And, and so things happen in the United States that like deserve serious attention that are weird like that. And I think January 6th proved that, right? That they have to care about these things, even if you don't want to, so. Yeah, for me, what scares me is, uh, and this will be the closing note, but you know, I look at these characters like Mike Flynn or uh, you know, one character that has always interested me is uh, Mike Scheuer of uh, CIA's Bin Laden unit fame. I think they're pretty open about their views. And I think their view is that 
I think they believe that the U.S. government is illegitimate and occupied. Uh, I think they think it's occupied by some kind of external force. I think the term they would use is, uh, you know, oh, the, the communists. The, I mean, you see yeah. all it, you see it today with uh, people that say, oh, the CCP is is actually running the mainstream media. Right. That, that sort of Alex Jonesy type line. I think they really do think this is an illegitimate government that needs to be put down by any means necessary, which is the scary part, because that's when you get into can the covert operations uh, that were used in the Cold War be brought home in, yeah. in a really terrifying way. I'll just mention really quick that there's a video, Singlob gave a lecture in the late 70s after he got kicked out of the military, where he does refer to the State Department crowd in exactly the kind of terms you're talking about. He basically was like, we could have won in Vietnam and Korea, but we were, you know, they undermined us. It was basically a stab in the back kind of concept. And so Singlob in particular in his career forwarded that type of thing. And that's very common with the, the John Birch Society types, right? Like they believe that Eisenhower was a communist, right? Like, and so- I think they believe in 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 like a, uh, I, 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 I don't know if this is a mischaracterization, but I think a lot of these elements on the far right uh, think with Vietnam or with Iraq or with a lot of these conflicts, we weren't able to do what was necessary. The, the human rights people got in the way and, you know, we should do scorched earth. They're basically advocates yes. for what I would say is total war. Yes. Yeah. They they felt that Vietnam should have been nuked. Korea should have been nuked. Uh, if we had the nukes, why didn't we just use the nukes? You know, and, but again, yeah, I think that they don't they don't really see the idea that the United States internally should be kept away from that. They just um, they have a pretty flexible view of that type of thing. And and I, I just, you know, and the Trump administration really gave between green to yellow lights for a lot of that style of thinking. Usually other presidencies kind of push that stuff off into the shadows, uh, but it came out way more into the open. And, and I think it was really hard for to go off on a whole other subject, but as we followed the rise of white supremacist and fascist organizing during the Trump administration, uh, it became really clear that a lot of media people had trouble conceptualizing how serious that was because they're usually used to thinking, oh, there's just extremes on both sides. Like there's just people on both sides that are being extreme, right? And it took Intel Charlottesville to actually shake that frame off uh, from mainstream media editors. I remember when we had the uh, the one article, I think it was in Vice that said, uh, they, they referred to Richard Spencer as the the dapper uh, white nationalists or whatever. And it's like, are, are you guys not taking this seriously? Yeah. yeah. And, and, and just, and generally, you know, the New York times and all those places, like they were kind of like, just sort of like, Oh, it's just, you know, it's just extremists on both sides, whatever. And it's like, well, I don't know. There isn't really a counterpart figure to people like general Singlob or the John Birch society on the liberal side or the left. Right. Like these are very hardline people and, and it doesn't, it needs to be stated like what these folks actually say to each other internally. Right. Which I think usually gets ignored. That was why one reason I wanted to focus on the meeting with the Flynn brothers, Sidney Powell is that, you know, those folks have all that stuff. They say to their own audiences, places like right wing watch do and media matters do keep tabs on that. Right. But I think that like farther out into the mainstream, uh, that stuff doesn't really get condensed accurately. It doesn't get clearly understood how far 
these folks are talking each other into this uh, issue of basically trying to, you know, subvert elections and, uh, you know, use use force, you know, use chaos and then have another sort of extreme lawyer wing. And then potentially whether it's the military or the police or, you know, oath keeper elements or whatever, like, like all those kind of parallel elements, right, can come into play in things like this. And, and I and I hope that people keep that in mind and just sort of you know, try to break it down further. So, so this is a bit of an odd question. I don't know what you think of it, but uh, do you ever feel like a lot of people that have taken up this term, uh, the deep state, and I mean, they're not using it in the same way as I think Peter Dill Scott or uh, people like Mike Lofgren, um, who actually is a big critic of uh, Trumpism. I think a lot of these figures on the right that are using this term deep state, I, I almost feel like they're projecting at times, um, especially when it's people like Mike Flynn saying it. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Like, like, you know, like the FBI is very right wing. <laughs> like, like, you know, so much, you know, there's a lot of people in the civil service in this country from a variety of different orientations, right? But there are certainly hardline political hacks back, especially in law enforcement, military, the huge, you know, sprawling intelligence agency, you know, as far as the eye can see, that are really hardline people. You know, they don't necessarily believe in having a multipolar society. And while it's true that there was people that didn't like Trump that definitely mucked around in his administration's agenda, and he could call that the deep state if he wants, you know, um, the, the flip side is like, you know, this stuff happens all the time. Like if, you know, if, if someone came in that was way on the other side, you know, was really far left, I think you would see, you know, it's similar weird things happening in the government of, from deeply embedded places, leaks, uh, things happening slowly. You can, you can see like similar instances uh, in municipal or state governments at a smaller scale in different ways, you know, like, so you can find, simpler examples of stuff that's not as murky as the national security state uh, in local or state government, I would say. So. Well, hey, Dan, Fight, I want to thank you for coming on Parallax News. You stayed a little bit long, and I, I appreciate that. How can my listeners keep up with your work and the work at Unicorn Riot? Yeah, so our website's at unicornriot.ninja, and we have Unicorn Riot on uh, Facebook, on YouTube, on Vimeo. It's uh, UR underscore ninja on Twitter. And, uh, you know, personally, I'm on Twitter at Hong Pong. That's my personal handle, not affiliated with the org. It's just my personal thoughts and stuff. And so uh, and we have a mailing list as well. So every, you know, month or two, we will also shoot out an email to folks uh, because we all have to fight with the social media optimization algorithms and email is a good way around that. So, yeah, that is, and we really appreciate it. If people can share our work, that really helps a lot. We're not a huge org. We're just a little nonprofit. And uh, we really, I really appreciate how much everyone's sort of helped my stories go farther by pushing them out. So that's what I would suggest. And thank you again, Dan Fight. Yeah, thank you. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dan Fight of Unicorn Riot. Be sure to keep up with the work he and others are doing at that media collective. I highly recommend it. And I hope that you were able to follow the conversation despite the, at times, I would say vast sprawling nature of it 
and the many figures and subjects covered. If you appreciate the work here I do with Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. There's everything from a $1 tier to a $100 tier with a $5, $10, and $15 tier in between. And of course, at the $10 tier and above, you get a producer's credit shout-out. So, producer's credit shout-outs to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, Elliot, Colin, and Matthew Ho. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, well, consider joining those listeners in supporting me at the $10 tier or above at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallax views and with that being said until next time you've been listening to parallax views with jerry Views to parallax views with jerry the way out is not simply to say don't do it just to prohibit if nothing else if we don't do it, others will be doing this like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.